here we are. Let's see. We're going to read. Seventeen. So let me see here. One hundred nineteen. Hello. How are you there? Psalm one hundred nineteen, verse seventeen. I had it tagged, but I also didn't have the page marked. Okay. Here we go. Gimel, deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the curse to stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. All right, let's see what we got. We got no gym today, so I'm, I'll just do the reading, and then uh, Burke is sick, so we're not going to have a lot of back and forth. He keeps us busy with that, and uh, other people sick, some traveling, and uh, I got a whole list of people. I'm not going to read uh, this day in history, because I got a lot of people that uh, need to be mentioned for prayer. Um, Mark, who I mentioned last week, his father, Mark Bachman's father, uh, he took a turn for the worst, and so he went to be with his father, and he's asked for prayer because uh, they don't know what his status is going to be, and I have not heard from him in two days. So he's with his dad, and then we have um, last Sunday during church, one of the people got up and left, and uh, he called me a day later and said he, he would like prayer for his friend Dave and uh, some uh, people associated with him because of his friend Stephanie who was murdered here in Bradenton a couple days ago, 41 years old. And uh, um, so anyway, it, it really affected him. So Mike has asked for prayer for Dave and for Stephanie's family, et cetera. And then um, Sharon's mom, I wrote that down. And I, I'm, and then Terry, uh, step, oh, I'm sorry. That's still the people involved. Sharon is the mom, Terry is the stepfather. And so he's asked for prayer for all of them. And uh, then we have Lisa's mom and stepdad. She's asked for prayer for them. Uh, he's going into a nursing home and it's really tough on the family. He doesn't wanna go and uh, she's asked for prayer for that situation. And then uh, Darla who attends here on Sundays, her niece Katie has high blood pressure and severe headaches. And so she may be leaving to go be with her up in Philadelphia or, or Pennsylvania. So she asked for prayers there. And then Clar Clarissa wants prayer for her company. They've lost some clients. She thinks it's probably due to Brexit. Brexit, And uh, so she's asked that uh, the company would be able to maintain itself during this transition in England. And hopefully they'll be able to keep the company going and their jobs. And then um, Brian emailed and he slipped and fell. He hurt his left shoulder and he's asking that we pray that he doesn't have to go through surgery, which that'll come up next week. And uh, then Steve has stage four prostate cancer, which we have somebody else here that has a similar situation. And he's asked for prayer for that. And then we have Robin, who is Linda, Jim and Linda's daughter, got out of the hospital a couple days ago. She uh, uh, was home today and had terrible pain. And so they called a nurse and the nurse said that she's bleeding again and she's on complete bed rest. And Miss Magnuson, who attends here, 
Uh, she is in the hospital. I went to see her yesterday and she was in pain too. So they've got, you know, these internal problems that are just bothering them really heavily. And uh, I don't know when Miss Magnuson is going to get out. I got an email from Mr. Magnuson right before I left the house today. And um, we, uh, uh, it, it didn't say anything about a release date or anything, just it was an update. But um, one nice thing is that we have a guy that's here on Sunday's day and uh, he took a uh, a teddy bear to her, to Miss Magnuson. He walked, you know, J.S. He walks up and he's always. He took a teddy bear to her, and she told me yesterday. I, she said, I don't want anything else. I told him I don't want anything else, and as soon as I got it in my arms, he was so comfortable. Sure enough, we walked in there yesterday to see her, and she was sleeping with her teddy bear in her arms. So you know, she just she doesn't want to be a burden on anybody. But once she got it, it really meant something to her. So uh, just remember that in the future, if people are in the hospital. If you take them something, whether it's flowers to cheer them up, maybe a teddy bear. So there you go with that. And we got all those prayer requests that uh, and others that I didn't write down that uh, it's been, as last week, a very busy week. But let's ask the Lord for his, his hand in this. Lord, you've heard these people's prayer requests and you know all of them. You also know anybody else that has emailed or asked for prayer that didn't specifically ask to be put on a list. But you know their situations as well. And Lord, we would ask that your hand would be with these people and help them to get better, to travel safely, such as in Jim's case, or uh, to uh, just be able to endure what they're going through. I see Blake is not here and he said that he was feeling bad. So I would pray that he's doing better as well. But uh, if he's not, that you would be with him also. Lord, be with your people and just give them the comfort they need and the health that uh, they desire, if it is in your will. And if it's not, be a present uh, reminder to them that you are there and that you are tending to them, even in their affliction. Lord, we certainly thank you for the wonderful blessings of this life. You are so very good to us. And we ask that you bless this uh, time in the Bible study. And we ask it would be honoring of you and that uh, our doctrine would be proper. And if it's not, that you would highlight us to that fact. Lord, we thank you for the chance to come in your presence in this way, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi, Carol. How are you? Oh, just ducky. Just ducky. All right. We're going to be in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11 today. Oh, before we get started, Steve brought in a whole bunch of billion-dollar, million-dollar bills, and they're tracks, and they he had the uh, superior word stamped on the back of them. So if you want any of those million-dollar bills to hand out, you know, catches people's eye. They see something looks like money, and then they pick it up, and, and uh, hopefully that'll work. And there's hundreds of them there. So take a whole pack and hand them out if you want. And uh, the other tracks are on the wall as well. So there you go. Oh, one more thing. Before we actually get into 1 Corinthians 4.11, somebody emailed me, and it was such a nice email. I asked if I could uh, share it. Uh, she, This is her church, apparently, and I didn't know that until this week. But she said, um, uh, I, I'm going to leave some of the things that are kind of personal out, but she says, uh, uh, hello, Pastor Charlie Garrett, which just call me Charlie. Um, I'm so elated that I found your church on YouTube and I started by listening to your updates, but soon was listening to your sermons and uh, I want to tell you how much I enjoy your method of teaching. Well, we'll, we'll skip over that. Um, she said, um, uh, I now listen to everything current, but in addition, have started with you in Genesis. I'm up to Genesis 20 and uh, the second message in that one. Often I enjoy a um, particular message so much that I listen to it a second or a third time so I can soak it in. And she says, I'm 82 years old woohoo, and have been a Christian since attending Sunshine Hour. 
in Christian release time in the fourth grade way back when. I do indeed love him better every day, and I love being a part of your church services by internet. And she says, I love your people there. So that's everybody here and the people maybe she chats with you online. I don't know. The Lord has blessed me with six children, 14 grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. I told you a lot of this because I want you to know uh, me a little as a happy attendee at your church. And then she also said, I also found Sergio and Rhoda because of you and have watched all of their videos. I can't leave the house unless my children take me. I'm in a wheelchair. And so I spend all day in front of my computer listening to about three favorite preachers and uh, crocheting for my children and grandchildren. I have made more than 30 blankets and multiple other things as well. And uh, thank you for reading this, I, as I could talk for hours about my precious grandchildren. And uh, she said, say hello to the blessed people at your church and love and many prayers to you. And her name is Barbara Warren. So that's for all of you. It's also for the people online, I know, because you're all part of the church as well. So that just, that just did me. I, oh, great stuff. Um, I don't remember where she is. I think she did tell me, but I don't know. She's somewhere here in the church with us right now, though. I know that. All right, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11, and let's see. Um, uh, yeah, that's fine. We'll just start with that. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. There you go. Obviously, he's speaking about himself and the other apostles. In his words, in this verse, Paul now contrasts the ironical statements made from verses 8 through 10 concerning how the Corinthians perceived themselves with the reality of how the apostles actually lived. The contrast is all the more striking when considering that the apostles were the, were the schooled ones. They were the leaders. They were those who saw Jesus. They were instructed by him and were granted his personal commission. And yet they're facing all of these troubles. He notes their sad state and says that it persists to the present hour. This means that the poor living conditions of the apostles didn't end with the establishment of the churches as if they were a sudden influx of power, prestige, and money flowing into them. Instead, despite what we consider the exalted status of those early men of God, they lived in a state of deprivation. Paul says we, including the general lot of the apostles, were one in both hunger and thirst. And we know this is true with Paul, certainly, because he talks about it elsewhere, but here he's including all of the apostles in this. Those at Corinth went to church at someone's home or elsewhere. They ate bread together, fellowshiped, and then returned to their homes for their regular life of food and drink, along with all the other benefits of a home. At the same time, the apostles were generally moving from place to place to spread the news of Christ. There were no guarantees of lodging and a meal, and so hunger and thirst were a normal and expected part of their travels. And then two, they were poorly clothed, which is what I am every Monday, or I'm sorry, every morning when I go clean them all. I'm, uh, as a matter of fact, I was so poorly clothed yesterday, I always wear the same shirt until it's completely worn out. That's uh, something that, what's the country singer, long hair, smoked pot. Um, uh, he did a lot of Christian songs. Willie Nelson, he did the same thing. He'd wear the same t-shirt until it would wear out. Well, um, I always wear the same one. And so I, I wash it on Friday. Anyway, yesterday it had so many holes in it. I was embarrassed. So I took the thing and tossed it and I'm now wearing a new black shirt. But hello, how are you? So there you go, poorly clothed. Some translations here say naked. The idea is one of clothing, which is worn out from continual use, even to the point of being ragged. 
As travelers, they wouldn't carry along a suitcase with changes of clothes, but would simply wear the same clothes continuously. This is the way people lived back then. Having one garment or two at the most is the standard back then. So if somebody had more than that, they were considered very wealthy. In this state, they would enter a synagogue or a congregation and speak to those who were wearing their normal clothes or even a set of clothes set apart for special occasions. Instead of being the height of fashion when attending, they would be the poorest dressers of all. Now imagine that. These are people that lived with Christ, were commissioned by Christ. They're the ones that have penned the pages of the Bible. And yet when they were out there presenting themselves, they would have been in, they would not have been the uh, epitome of fashion in the churches. This state wouldn't be unknown to the Corinthians and they could not claim that Paul was making this up. See, that's the good thing about it being epistle that went to a church is when he writes something, we know that it's true. Because if he wrote something and it wasn't true, then they would immediately call him out. And, well, we know that's not true. You've been here 45 times. And, you know, you've been through here with these other people. And, you know, you were eating lamb chops and steak. And no, not at all. What he is saying, they they know is correct. So uh, they had seen him and Peter already, and they knew his words were so. As it was true with him, there is no reason to believe any other apostles were dressed any better. Okay, and maybe even worse, because Paul was a what? What was his profession? Tent maker, that's right. So he knew how to sew. If he had a tear in his garment, he'd just sew it up. If the other apostles did, they might have to wait until they had somebody that could sew for him. But tent, tent makers have a special ability to make uh, uh, holes go away. And so Paul probably, even though he was in a bad state, may not have been as bad as some of the other apostles. Three, he says they were beaten. This is a customary theme of the book of Acts. It seems everywhere Paul went, someone was pulling at him, whipping him, slapping him, stoning him, or otherwise attacking him in some other physically offensive way. They were always doing it. Now, he obviously, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he bore the brunt of this. The apostles to the Jews would have had to put up with the Jews that didn't like the message of Jesus. But other than that, they probably would not have had quite the treatment Paul had. Paul got the brunt of it. He really was the one that, that took it from everybody. But what's that? Did he ever fight back? No. Uh, he got a bad argument with Barnabas one time, but it doesn't say they came to blows. But the term used is a paroxysm. And it means literally coming close to blows. So they were really angry at each other. They split. And as we noted in the book of Acts, that ended up being for the good because Paul took um, uh, Silas and Barnabas took uh, Mark and they separated and then they had two missions instead of one. So it worked out exactly as it should have, you know, in the Lord's working, the gospel spread more. But it was a sad thing. And there's no record of Paul ever reconciling with Barnabas. He did with Mark. We can get that from the book of Timothy. But uh, I think it's 2 Timothy. Anyway, yeah, 2 Timothy. But um, uh, it, it is not the case. He never mentioned Barnabas again in any positive or negative light. But um, yeah, there's nothing that says that they fought back. And in fact, they actually, Paul could have. He was a Roman citizen. He was dragged into jail with, um, who was it? They were Silas, I think. Yeah. And uh, uh, they were in prison. And they were beaten, then put in prison. They were there at night. The, the earthquake set them free. And the, the uh, guard actually had to treat their wounds. Okay, so while he's treating their wounds, they got the gospel, and then they baptized the family, etc. So that may not be in that order, but that's what happened. The next day, the people came to have Paul released, and he said, oh, no, 
Not a, yeah, absolutely not, because I'm a Roman citizen and you had no right to do what you did. He could have said, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't beat me. And he kept his mouth shut. And he was making a point to the people, you know, that I'm not going to fight back. I'm going to show that I am entitled to uh, uh, conduct my affairs as I want. And But he did use his... Now, there's a difference. When he was in um, uh, Jerusalem, and they stretched him out, and the Roman, uh, uh, I think it was the centurion, uh, wanted to have him flogged as well. And Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. Why the difference? Why did he not do it with the guy in, uh, uh, I think it was Ephesus, Philippi, anyway, wherever it was. But the guy in Jerusalem was going to flog him and he said, no. Why the difference? It's because when they flogged him in uh, uh, wherever it was, Philippi, Ephesus or something, they would have had a certain type of flogging that they did probably with whips or something maybe uh uh cords you know um something hard that would hurt your back and it could cause you to have blood on your back but in jerusalem in a centurion's area they probably would have used the flagrant which had the uh the whips on with pieces of metal or bone or or stone in there and when they hit you it would rip your back open and that, that's what happened to christ and so he he nobody would want to go through that you could literally die from that type of whipping and uh, you certainly would be in pain for a long, long time. So there was a difference between that. And that's the same thing with the, uh, the Jewish um, uh, flogging. They would have used, you know, maybe a stick or something and uh, flogged somebody that way. And there's the uh, uh, law in the law of Moses that they could only whip somebody how many times maximum? Well, actually, the Bible says 40. The Jews took one away so that they would never err and break the law. So that's where the 39 stripes come from. It's not actually in scripture, but you're right. The Jews would take one away for that purpose. Or what they would do is they would have, um, this is not in the Bible, okay? This is just something, a commentary read, that they may have a uh, flog uh, that would have three cords on it. And so they would whip them nine times. And three times nine is, uh, or, no, that's 27. They do it, how many, whatever, 39 divided by 13. three, 13 times, thank you. So that way they get less hits, but they'd have three stripes on each. And same thing. It would keep them from violating the law by going over 40. That's all tradition. But anyway, the, uh, you'll, you may hear somebody say, well, Jesus was beaten 39 times, okay, when he went to the cross. That is completely incorrect. You want to drop that out of your memory bank. And the reason why is because that was a Jewish flogging. He was flogged by the Romans, and so they would have beat him as long as they wanted, and they would have torn his back open as much as they wanted. If they flogged him, you know, the night before, then they would have done it 39 times. But that is not what happened when he was taken out and flogged by the, the Romans. They did not go by Jewish law, and they could have flogged him until the cows came home. It made no difference to them. So you want to make sure that when you uh, hear that type of a thing, that's incorrect. However, it is interesting that they have the 40 minus 1, which is 39, and how many books of the Old Testament are there? 39. It's like the law is a punishment upon the people, right? And then we come to the grace of Christ in the 40th book of the Bible. So just an interesting thing, but don't make doctrine of it. Okay, anyway, so they were beaten and uh, whipping, slapping, and all of that, and even the high priest of Israel had him so abused, and we'll see that in Acts chapter 23. I went way too far there. It was back in the book of Ezekiel. Acts chapter 23, and it says, um, 
Uh, I'll just start in verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Okay, so there you go. And uh, from there, Paul questioned why he would do that, which wasn't in accord with the law. But we won't worry about that today. And four, he says they were homeless. The apostles were persecuted to the point where they would have to leave home and family. And the very concept of having a stable home was contrary to the type of ministry they conducted. They wandered about it, the direction of the Spirit, to whatever place was selected to hear the good news of the gospel. The thought of a regular job and home probably never crossed their minds as they set their faces to the task ahead of them each day. But Paul understood that these things had nothing to do with a right relationship with God. If anything, they strengthened it. Paul's words of Romans 8.35 show that none of these things have any bearing on their intimate fellowship with Christ. Romans 8.35 says... Romans 8, verse 35 says, um, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? So none of the, those things would affect their relationship with Christ. Then his follow-up to this in Romans 8, 39, Paul says that none of these things, nor any other thing in heaven or on earth, would be effective to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will continue with this, with his sobering words to those in Corinth, and thus to us, of the conditions they suffered in Christ. So let us not worry if the latte machine is broken at church Sunday. It is of little consequence. And if anybody here is warm today, because uh, Pat has a cold compress on her, so we had to turn up the air, so it's just now coming on. So I want everybody to know that uh, uh, if it's ever hot in the superior word, it's because of somebody asking that, or if it's too cold at uh, another time, it's because of somebody asking that, and it's not a huge affliction like these guys went through, okay? So don't worry about the latte machine. Life application. Are you timid to go to church because you don't have clothing, which is as good as the others who attend? Okay, in America, that's not a great problem, but it is a problem for some people. Or do you wish the dirty person in the pew next to you would take a shower and put on better clothes when coming to church? It is with certainty that either perspective is wrong. The apostles themselves were surely in far worse clothing. Would they be accepted into your church today? Gotta wonder, you know? Old clothes and raggedy shoes on his feet. Who let this person into our church today? When we shake hands and when we greet to that dirty fellow, I've nothing to say. But didn't Christ die for him too? Weren't the apostles dressed worse than he? Lord, forgive my heart for making such a to-do. I'm sorry for such thoughts, Lord. Please forgive me. Verse 412. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. Paul continues to relay the plight of the apostles as they set forth to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only did they hunger and thirst, wear poor clothes, and receive ill treatment, they also didn't impose upon others who may have recognized their plight. Instead, he says, laboring, uh, they labor and working with their own hands. In Acts 18, it is noted that Paul, as we noted here, was a tent maker. And he worked in that job while traveling in order to pay his way. 
in Acts 20, he even notes to those in Ephesus that he provided for my necessities and for those who were with him. That's Acts 20, verse 34. In other words, he not only worked to pay his own way, he paid for those who traveled with him as well. In similar words, he wrote in both epistles to those in Thessalonica concerning his personal labors and the reason for it. He says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, um, For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, am I in, yes, um, sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need, to, I'm sorry, I'm reading chapter of 1, I'm supposed to be in chapter 2, I knew that wasn't right. He says, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached you the gospel. So, once again, he wrote this to them, and he said that we labored, we didn't put a burden on any of you. It cannot be a lie, because if it was, Thessalonica would have said this is a lie, and we wouldn't have this book of the Bible right now. So, we know that these things are true. We know that Paul worked with his own hands. We know that he, as he said, I robbed other churches to care for you. I think we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians, maybe 2 Corinthians, where he had the churches in Macedonia. He would accept support from them, but he wouldn't accept it from these people in Corinth. And he had a reason for everything he did, but he worked for his own wages and his own food, everything, when he was in Thessalonica. And then, following the words of the Lord to those he instructed, they showed that this was the way to win true and sincere converts to the message they preached. In Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus gave us this admonition to his followers. Okay, hang on a second here. Matthew 5, verse 44. Hang on here. He said there, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Okay, he said that to his followers and Paul obviously picked up on that, and he says, I'm going to do the same thing, and you will see him that way. He blesses people when he should be cursing, or not should be, but when he could be cursing, and uh, he followed the precepts of the Lord as far as a follower of Christ in that regard. So, the blessing of those who came against them was from the wisest counselor of all and proved to be true, the true door to opening hearts and minds. But not only did they bless when reviled, Paul continues by saying that being persecuted, we endure. The blessings were given, and regardless of whether the persecutions continued or not, they endured. They kept blessing, they kept praising God, and they continued to proclaim their message. Now, when Jesus said that in Matthew 5, 44, he was speaking to the people the, of Israel to go out into the land of Israel and to do their witnessing to the people. But the precept holds the same you're going to get the same response from people if you treat people the same. It doesn't matter if they're Jews or if they're Gentiles. And so uh, that's, you don't want to mix dispensations there as what's going on. But at the same time, we want to understand that when the Lord says something, as far as an admonition to his followers to do something, probably carries through in all dispensations, okay? If you, uh, what does Paul say? If you, um, something, heap coals on his head. I, I, I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, so we'll let that go. Anyway, um, in their persecution, a greater reward was promised. Again, from Matthew 5, 
we learn of the blessing for those who are so treated here in Matthew 5, verse uh, 11 and 12. Hang on a second. I should have just left my hand right in Matthew, but I didn't. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. He says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we have the same thing. We've got the prophets being persecuted. We know that very well from the Old Testament. And especially if you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, what some of the people went through, they went through a lot, okay? And then Jesus' followers in Israel, hey, same thing. And now the disciples, I'm sorry, the apostles after Christ's resurrection, they're out there and they're suffering exactly the same way. Okay, as a matter of fact, just because we're there, let me see, I don't cite it. No, I don't, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I do not cite it. So what we're going to do is we're going to go really quickly to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And there it says, these are some of the things that uh, the people went through. Um, let's see here, I'll go down a little bit. Such things they declare plainly, by faith Abraham Moses, by faith he forsook. Uh, okay, I've still got to go. Okay, here it is. Uh, verse 36. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Why? God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So there you go. It's just a short synopsis of what the prophets of old went through. We see that it followed right through with the apostles in the New Testament. All right. So um, although these words were spoken by Jesus under the law, Matthew 5, 11, and 12, that I read you a minute ago, uh, to those under the law, they are confirmed in the apostles' actions and by the words of Peter to those he addressed in his first epistle. So let me take you there really quickly so you can see that Peter also recognizes the exact same thing. Uh, one Peter, it's probably one, I, my fat finger took something off. So let me see if I can find this. Uh, no, nope, that's not one Peter chapter two, uh, one Peter chapter three. Hang on a minute here. I've got... Uh, well, that might be it, but I don't think that's the verse I'm looking for. Here it is, verse 14. Uh, if you are reproached, it's 414. That's, I missed the uh, chapter when I typed this. Um, he says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, blasphemed but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Okay, so there you go. That's uh, Peter's words. People are going to suffer. We can expect it, Jew and Gentile in this church age. We can expect that occurring. Though there are no apostles today, I disagree with people that call themselves apostles because an apostle means a sent one. Okay, an apostle of Jesus Christ is one sent by Jesus Christ. You can be an apostle, you can be sent by your church, but why use a term to confuse things or to exalt your status? There's no point in that, okay? An apostle of Jesus Christ ended 
with the last apostle of Jesus Christ. There are no apostles today, meaning apostles of Christ. All right. So there are no apostles today. There are missionaries who carry on this type of work in areas which have never before heard the good news. They have the words of the Lord, the examples of the apostles, and the history of many generations of missionaries who have gone before them to be assured that this is the right approach to evangelizing those who have never heard the good news. It is an awesome and blessed life that far too few consider in this world of ease and luxury. Yesterday, I was at the hospital. Miss Magnuson, we're talking with her, Hidako and I, and in walks Miss Magnuson's granddaughter. She's a young girl. She, she's not very old. I, I don't want to speculate on her age, but she's not old. And she is leaving in four months, giving her life up to the service of the Lord overseas. And she that is her goal. It's not anything else. She's not going there to get married. She's not going there for any other purpose than to be a missionary and to spread the message of Christ. And so um, and one way, I'm sure Miss Magnuson is anxious about the situation. And another, she's very proud of her. So there you go. I mean, but it's just, and it, here's another thing that's a huge crime. I, I have to say this, it is just a huge crime, is there are a lot more female missionaries nowadays than there are male missionaries. They go out, they serve faithfully overseas, and the males are too busy doing whatever we're doing in the United States, and we do not go forth. And that, to me, is just a real loss, because once you've established a organization in an area, if the woman that establishes that organization follows scripture, she can't teach those people once it's established because she, the Bible says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So you can lead, anybody can lead anybody to Christ and that's what a missionary does. But they should also be establishing churches and going on from there. And so if they are willing to be obedient to the precepts of the Bible. And it's funny, I've, I've had several emails on that particular issue this week, okay, and last week is, you know, people asking about that. And I say the same thing every time. You know, they'll say, are there any circumstances? One of my friends emailed me a day or two ago and said, are there any circumstances where you think that a woman can't teach or have authority over a man? And I simply said, Paul doesn't, and so I don't, okay? He wrote those words, I'm going to live by them. There, to me, there are no exceptions, okay? People have to make their own choices in life. I, they do whatever they want. But to me, Paul's words stand, okay? They are the words of the Lord through the apostle. Anyway, um, life application. Take time to pray for those who are in the mission field or those who are going. We got our friends Ray and Jess who will be leaving rather shortly. And when they go, they'll be in PNG, which is a very backward country. And they'll be in a place that probably doesn't have a written language for the people that they evangelize. Okay. They've got to learn the language. They've got to develop a language, or I'm sorry, a written language. And then they have got to uh, establish a church and they've got to start translating the Bible. They're dedicating the rest of their lives to this effort. Okay. And they've got little children. Okay. It's not like they're a couple that is just going out on an adventure. They're taking their children to a place that could be very dangerous. And certainly where you can get sick, you can, you know, typhoid and all of the diseases. I had a friend that uh, was in Wycliffe and went over there, Papua New Guinea, and she got malaria twice and she, it destroyed her health so badly she had to come back to America. She's no longer a missionary. But anyway, they are doing a task which has continued on for 2,000 years and which is the only hope of life and blessing for those they encounter, okay? Um, you know, people debate, and I'm, I'm just going to say this, 
I always get people angry at me when I say this, but people debate, what about the person that's never heard of Jesus? Can they go to heaven? Well, if that's true, then why would we send somebody as a missionary? That would be the stupidest thing on the planet to do. Why would you send somebody to be a missionary to people if they could be saved apart from Christ? Okay, that's my answer to you. Verse 413. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. This is Paul writing about the apostles. He can't be lying because he's writing to people that already knew him and some of the other apostles, okay? Once again, keep reminding yourself of this. He's not making this up. These are words which he is trying to convince them of their own conduct by reminding them of his conduct and those with him. In the previous verse, Paul began a list of things which demonstrated the lowly and unappreciated state of the apostles. He continues that list in this verse to show the difficult circumstances they faced and how they handled them. He begins with being defamed, we entreat. In essence, they are cursed or held in great contempt by those they encounter. However, they turn the proverbial cheek and entreat. Rather than biting back, as you asked, they plead for grace between themselves and the offending party. Instead of cursing them and wishing their destruction, they look to reconciliation in hopes of their salvation. Paul then notes how they actually consider how they are actually considered in the eyes of their persecutors by saying, we have been made the filth of the world. The word translated as filth carries a technical sense to it. In essence, it concerns men who are set apart for death in order to provide expiation. A comparable concept, although death is not mandated in this instance, is found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, which reads, let me take you there. Leviticus chapter 13 and Exodus, Leviticus 16, 15, 13. Hang on, we're almost there. 13:45 says, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall be unclean all the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The unclean person is cast outside the camp in order to carry away the infection from it. If you don't understand that passage, go back and watch the sermon. It's very interesting. This is the kind of thing that Paul is intimating in how he is treated. In addition to this, he says that he and other apostles are considered the offscouring of all things until now. The word here finds its roots in a verb which indicates rubbing or scraping or shaving, and so carries a similar idea to what he said about being filth. In order to be cleansed, they look at Paul and others as if something which needs to first be removed. If one were to think of cutting away hair which was full of chewing gum, the picture would be appropriate. That's what Paul is trying to describe about himself and how people treat them. They treat them as if they are chewing gum and hair and they just need to be cut out and tossed away. Okay, once again, he couldn't write these words unless he was correct in what he was writing. People wouldn't believe that. And, you know, another example is when somebody is in the hospital and they develop an infection, what do they do? They send them to the place where it's isolated from everybody else. Just like a person is sent outside of the camp, unclean, unclean. Well, that's what we do in our hospitals. And nobody can go in or out without wearing certain things. They have to wear gloves and stuff over there. 
Tom knows this. We go there all the time. When somebody in the projects goes to the uh, hospital, we go visit them. Okay. And if they are, you know, uh, what is it? What is it? Diabetes. Okay. Somebody loses a toe with diabetes. All right. That's a really bad sign. If they don't take care of themselves 100% after that point, it's inevitable almost, isn't it? We've seen it several times. We'll go there and somebody will have a bad infection from diabetes. Off comes the toe. And we know where this is going. They're not going to go home and they're not going to take care of themselves. A month later, I'm going to have to have my foot removed. And so they go in and they get their foot removed. Two months later, they have to have their leg taken off above the knee. Okay? And we know what's going to happen after that. It's in their body. They are not leaving that hospital. They eventually get sent to a room where only we can go if we are ministers or family. That's it. Okay, we go in there. We're wearing all of these clothes. We have to wash before we go in. We have to wash after we go out. And we are there to say goodbye because it is inevitable when something like that happens. So I'm telling you online, if you're watching and you have diabetes, take care of it. Okay, and if you do get an infection in your toe, make sure you get it treated immediately and do exactly what you're told. Because Tom and I, and I couldn't be saying this because Tom is here. I couldn't, I'm not making this up. This is something that is really important for you to remember. If you have something like that, you take care of it. Because if not, you will, it, you know, it's not just that you're going to die. It's that you're going to die, one, in an isolated unit, and you're going to die without parts of your body. I care this much as to say this. And as gruesome as that sounds, it is really important. Fred, have a wonderful night. Take good care. Anyway, that's, that's my appeal to you to take care of yourself while you can because it is something that is very sad. I carry it with me all the time. When we pass by the houses where these people live, it comes to mind. It just does. So anyway, 414. Let's see here. Did I read the life application? No, life application on 413. We did do 413, didn't we? Yes. Um, okay. Um, uh, the apostles were willing to endure great verbal and even physical abuse for the sake of the gospel. A time is probably coming, and it may be prior to the rapture, where all who call on Christ will be faced with similar persecution. We're already getting that in the world today. Be ready to follow Paul's example when the time comes. And that is going to be tough, because we are bred in this country to be bold about what we say. Okay, we've got Facebook, and we're very bold about what we say. But when it comes to the point where we are no longer a force for good, we're going to have to be a force that is willing to take abuse if the rapture doesn't happen first. That is just the way it is. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because that is what the Bible teaches. But it doesn't mean that all is going to be rosy before the Lord comes for his church, okay? And so if you are willing to proclaim Christ and not deny Christ, we have no idea when he's coming. We may face this as well. So there you go with that. Verse 414, I do not write these things to shame you, which is, the intent, but it's not the intent, if you know what I'm saying. What he's doing is he's trying to say, you guys are living this way, we have lived this way. And that's why he's saying that. I'm not writing this to shame you, okay? But as my beloved children, I warn you, okay? And this is what a father would do with his son. I've worked my whole life. I've saved money to get you through school. I sent you to the private school. I sent you to college. I did all of this, and you're throwing your life away. He's trying to do the exact same thing. He's not shaming his son. He's giving an example of his life and saying, this is what you need to remember as well. And that's what he's doing with his own children in the city of Corinth, okay? So now, in contrast to his words, which he has thus far spoken, 
words of irony followed by words which included examples of personal hardship and trial, Paul removes the irony and explains why he gave those striking examples by saying, I don't write these things to shame you. His words were not intended to degrade them, but to affect a positive change in thinking in them and thus in us, okay, and their lives in them. His words of irony weren't intended as a means of embarrassment, and his words about his sufferings weren't meant to exalt him above them as if they hadn't somehow earned a right through personal trial, which he had. Instead, and even if it had this effect, they weren't intended to shame or to taunt them. Rather, he had more lofty and righteous intents in mind. In contrast to this perception, he explains, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Okay, here's a good example that comes to mind right away. A missionary comes from overseas, and he has been in a place where there is strong Christian persecution. Or you might get somebody that actually was from that country, right? He's in um, a Muslim country, and he's a Christian, and he's been abused his whole life, and he comes to speak at your church, okay? Or somebody from China, and they have to face the persecution that is going on over there. And they come, they visit churches, and they say, this is what it's like. That's kind of what Paul is doing there. He's telling them that life is not easy everywhere. And just because you're sitting there fat, dumb, and happy doesn't mean that that's the normal working of the world, okay? Things are coming in the world, and it may affect you someday as well. And that's what he's telling Corinth, and that's what we should be telling ourselves, is that we have it easy now. It's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. It's great to be able to come into church after having a big breakfast at a nice restaurant, and then coming in here, and then afterward going out and having a nice big lunch, and all of the other things that we can do. We've got air conditioning in the church. We've got, you know, music and all of these things. Great. That's wonderful. It does not mean that it will continue, and it doesn't mean that it's deserved. And unfortunately, especially in America, we feel like these things are deserved, and it is not. We've got my friends in Kenya, the Superior Word Church in Kenya, and they've asked me to make an appeal. They want to buy the land they're in, okay? They're in a church right now. And I hadn't seen it. They made a banner and they showed it to me. Superior Word Kenya, okay? And it's very nice. It's just like our sign out front and it hangs on the wall. And he sent me a picture of their church so that I could put it on to an appeal on the Prophecy Update and see if people are willing to help them out. They want to buy the land because right now they're paying rent every month, okay? And uh, so they want to buy the land and then they want to build a concrete building on this land. What they are worshiping in right now looks like, and I'm not kidding, if you were to walk up to that building and push on it, I bet you it would fall over. It's all tin, you know, the, uh, the, the tin things. It's, and there's cracks you can see right through the building all over the place. And I, I think these people really love the Lord. And they are there serving the Lord. They go out into the community. They feed them. They do all the things that they should be doing. This is what Paul is trying to tell them. This is what the reality of the world is like in many places, okay? And so we think, oh, we've got it made here. Well, we do, but we need to understand that not everybody does, and we may not in the future. Okay, anyway, um, as my beloved children, I warn you, he has been acting and speaking as a father would to his own children for good, for edification, for building up and exhortation. Just as a father will use examples from his own life in an attempt to show the right path, so Paul was doing thus far. When a parent tells of their past hardships, which is why I just did, I wish I'd read these in advance. Anyway, it is an anticipation that the child will listen and think, oh, I can avoid that by not doing what he did. 
whether it concerns financial mistakes, blunders during times of schooling, faults that came up in relationships, or whatever else the parent uses personal experience mixed with irony to impart wisdom to his children. Now, I'm 54 now, okay? I, when I was 20, actually when I was 14, and my dad would tell me something, I'd be like, I know all that, right? And so I'd ignore him, and then I'd find out dad was right, okay? And then when I was 20, I'm 20 years old. I don't need you telling me this. I know the answer, and then come to find out dad is right. And I did that when I was 32. You know, I, I, I came back from overseas. I'm about 36 years old. I've been, Dad, I've been around this entire world several times. You don't need to tell me that. And sure enough, come to find out Dad is right. I'm 54 years old. And three months ago, Dad says something to me. I say, Dad, please, would you just stop and come to find out a week later, Dad was right. There's always wisdom in age if people are willing to listen to it. Now, that doesn't mean that people of age are always wise, okay? Don't make that mistake, all right? There's a lot of people up in Congress that are in their 70s and 80s year old, and they don't know what they're talking about, okay? So just because age does not naturally bring wisdom, but age carries wisdom with it, if it is applied properly, okay? I may have said that wrong. If you listen, don't correct my English, but you get the point of what I'm trying to say, okay? Um, I'll read it again. Financial mistakes, blunders during time of schooling, faults that come up with relationship. Think of them all. All right. Whatever else the parent uses the personal experience, they mix it with irony to impart wisdom to the children. This is Paul's method here, and it is with a noble and heartfelt intent for his children in Christ there at Corinth. Life application. The Bible has many notes of instruction, which include examples of failure as well as success. Okay, if you don't have a father and you need instruction, yes, some mothers are the best instructors in the world. They've raised children, four and five children without a father, dad died, left, whatever. And those children are the most normal kids you'll ever know in the world, right? You know examples like that. If they don't have that type of an example of a woman with real wisdom, real godly wisdom, go to the Bible. Okay, go to the Bible anyway. I'm not saying use that as a last course of action. You want to go first. But go to the Bible, all right? If you don't have any other source on this planet for proper parenting, you'll get it out of the Bible. Absolutely, for sure, 100%, okay? I'm just making an example as far as a mother that may not have a husband. She doesn't have the well-rounded family knowledge unless she really paid attention to the father's duties, all right? You'll always get that out of the Bible. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, life uh, application, uh, yeah, the Bible has many notes of instruction, which include examples of failure as well as success. There's also irony directed to its audience. None of these are intended to shame us in the sense that we can never measure up. Rather, they are intended as a means of getting us to think on how we can measure up. And then God gives the answer by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and living according to his instruction. That instruction is found in the Bible. So, read your Bible. Okay, here you go. Verse 415. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Has anybody here ever led anybody to Christ? If you're embarrassed, don't raise your hand. It doesn't matter, but I know you have. Um, 
uh, you're a father to that person. You have begotten them in Christ. Okay, that's kind of an honor. Or you're a mother if you led them and you're not a guy. Okay, anyway, 4.15, let's see here. 4 is given based on the warning of the previous verse. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. The reason for the warning then was that though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Now, it's a certain thing that if somebody led somebody else to Christ, they probably care that that person is in Christ and they, they get proper doctrine. Okay, that doesn't mean that the person that led them to Christ has good doctrine. So that's another problem that we need to sort out. But the people that didn't lead them to Christ all have an agenda of some sort or another. Oh, come to our church or, oh, you know, and so you've got 10,000, what did he say, uh, instructors in Christ. Everybody, I say this all the time. I said it to myself this morning when I was angry about something. I've said this in this class many times too. I, I, every time I say it, it becomes more true to me. Is that everybody is a specialist in theology. Everybody. And yet very few people have actually read their Bible even once or twice, okay? That's a real problem. That's what he's saying here. You may have 10,000 instructors in Christ. Everybody knows everything, but nobody really knows theology. And that's a very sad place to be. Um, I will admit that I've had several pastors that I loved a lot that have said that they didn't read the Old Testament ever, okay? They would preach on the Old Testament. Well, guess what? They're preaching. They cannot be preaching on their own knowledge of the Old Testament if they've never read the Old Testament. So they're getting it from a book. They practice their sermon and they get out there and everybody says, oh, that was a great sermon. And yet you have no idea if what he told you was correct or not because he doesn't have the theology in his head to understand what he read, whether it was proper or not. But I've known ministers and preachers that have admitted, one of them, I read the Bible 30 years, one time. One of them said he never read the Old Testament in his life, okay? That's a real sad place to be. Anyway, now father will look to look after his own children in ways that an instructor will not. A good example to understand this is to see that the only other times that the term for instructors, which is pedagogus or a pedagogue in English, is used is in Galatians 3. Okay, let me take you there really quickly. Galatians 3. I, uh, I'll tell you this in a second. Let me get this out of the way first. 3.24. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our pedagogue, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogue, a tutor. Okay? A pedagogue was a slave who conducted children to school and looked over the care of their schooling. In a broader sense, it is used of teachers or instructors of any kind. This is what the law was intended to be. It was meant to lead us to the knowledge that we need more than just formal schooling, but a relationship and personal care. This is what Jesus provides us with. Paul is using the same idea in a metaphorical way about himself. Many teachers and instructors had come to Corinth. But, it, but only Paul could claim, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. He had been the one to originally bring them the message of Christ and to plant the church at Corinth. As a father begets children, he had gotten them in Christ through his preaching ministry. And so between them, in this, there was a bond similar to a father for a son. He felt the same way about Onesimus when he was writing to his friend Philemon in Philemon 1.10. Let me read you what he says there about him. Philemon. Philemon is such a wonderful book. It's just beautiful. Anyway, read it, understand it, 
study it, think on it. It's a beautiful book. But he says in uh, verse 10 of Philemon, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. There you go. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Anyway, um, I'll say that uh, I mentioned this last week when he was here, and he's not today. So uh, we'll hope that he's okay as Blake. Uh, he, you know, he struggles with some real physical problems, and he's got a lot of pain. So if you have extra prayers, always remember to pray, pray for Blake. But he uh, asked me a week or so ago which book I should read, and I mentioned it in class last week. I said, he said, I want to know God's grace. And I said, go to Galatians. It's all about the law. It's about staying away from the law. And he's like, I'm not sure that's what I want to read. I could just tell from the way he was saying it, because it's, it's one of these books that talks about Judaizers and all this. And he's read it again and again and again. He's he's all this week. He said, I've read it again and again this week. So now he's probably read it 25 times. Read these books. Don't just read them once and, you know, or listen to it and let it go after that. Take a book and read it and read it and read it until you have it in your head. It's become a part of you because that is where you can start weaving things together. What is Paul saying here? Then when you get to another book and he says something very similar, you can say, I now understand that connection. It will never happen if you don't read your Bible. It's not going to come. You can't sleep on your Bible and have it come into your head. You can't listen to sermons all day long and get that knowledge. The only way you're going to get that knowledge is to read the book again and again and again. Read Romans six or seven or eight times and then go on, read another book. That is how you're going to get solidified with proper doctrine in your head. Then you can listen to a sermon and you can say, you know what, what he said was not correct. I don't know why it's not correct maybe, but I know it's not correct. It's because something has clicked in you and then you go and search it out and you say, oh, you know what, I was wrong. He was correct or yeah, he, he was wrong, you know, whatever. You'll be able at least to pick up on things that maybe sound wrong until you find out, well, yeah, it, it, it was correct. Or you find out, yeah, I was really right about that. I'm glad I didn't listen to that. That's not going to happen unless you read the Bible. Life application. Are you familiar with the person who led you to Christ? If so, take the time to write them a note or give them a call and tell them how your walk is going. There's a special bond in this that deserves an extra moment of your time. If you've lost contact with that person, lift them up in prayer today to your Heavenly Father who knows exactly who they are and how to reward them. Okay? Life application. 416. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Well, that sounds kind of bold. Paul has been speaking of divisions within the church for four chapters now. Such divisions can only lead to a breakdown in harmony, infighting, and other trials. Eventually, they can ruin or completely divide a church. So one must think that Paul is actually causing a new division by his words in the previous verse, that he is a father to them. And then in this verse, by asking them to imitate him. Is he trying to greedily have the church follow him and not Apollos? Because remember, that's what he was talking about in the beginning of the uh, epistle. He says, some of you say, I follow Paul. And some say, I follow Apollos. And some say, I follow Cephas. Okay. Or some say, I follow Christ. The answer is no, he's not trying to divide the church. His statement that he is a father to them implies that they are children to him. A father will look out for good, not for evil, when guiding his children. And a father will have his own example to follow. In the case of Paul, he states his example explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 by again instructing them to imitate him while explaining why. He says, imitate me. 
just as I also imitate Christ. Okay, that's 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. So he's saying, you imitate me. Later he's going to say, I imitate Christ. Now you understand why to imitate me. Okay, Paul's example is Christ. If this is so, then asking them to imitate him, in effect, is simply learning the greater example of Christ. This is a common theme of Paul, often implied, often explicit. In Philippians 3 verse 17, he makes it explicit again. He says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And then he goes on. I'll go on a bit. For many of them of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of Christ. Okay? He's saying imitate us because we're followers. We're aligned with Christ. These people do not have your good in mind. All right? Another example is found in Ephesians chapter 5. All right, he says here, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling sweet aroma. Okay, so this is one of those verses when Jehovah's Witnesses come in and they say, Jesus isn't God. And you haven't read your Bible and you don't know what the Bible says. You say, boy, that sounds convincing. But if you have just listened to the last two minutes of commentary, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, what did he say? He imitates who? Christ. Okay, and he says, imitate me because I imitate Christ. And then here in the verse I just read you in Ephesians, he says, imitate God. Would he say that without being a blasphemer if Christ wasn't God? Absolutely not. They take him out and stone him. Okay. Christ is God. Jesus is God. The Trinity is born out in little subtle hints like that all the way through Scripture. Okay? The one plus one always equals two in theology. It never comes to some other amount. Okay? When it says in the Old Testament, if you go to the book of Isaiah and you read what Isaiah says of the Lord or what the Lord says of himself through Isaiah, and you take those designations and you go to the New Testament, you are going to find out very clearly that Jesus is God. I am the Lord your God. I am your Savior, and there is no other. Jesus is our... That's right. He says, I am the Lord your God. My glory I will not give to another. And what does it say in John 1.14? We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. I know I missed that a bit. And then it says it again in 1 John chapter 1. That which we have touched, which we have held with our hands, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, or whatever. I know I'm misquoting that again. But again and again, the glory of Christ is seen and explicitly stated. And I am the Lord your God. I am your Redeemer. And there is no other. Christ is our Redeemer. It goes on and on and on. And I know I'm misquoting those, but you get the point. I'm making a point. I'm not trying to quote the, the Bible exactly here. The Redeemer, Savior, His glory, uh, this and that one thing. And the, just go through Isaiah. Highlight all of the titles that the Lord gives Himself or the things that He says He does. I search the hearts and minds, right? What does it say about Jesus in the New Testament? Jesus searches the hearts and minds. It would be utter blasphemy if Jesus is not God, for us to be following Jesus Christ, okay? There's no doubt about it. 
if you get challenged by the Jehovah's Witnesses, pay attention to your Bible and the theology found in it and then refute them, okay? They are very well trained. They will confuse you if they show up at your door and you don't know your Bible. Read your Bible, read your Bible, highlight your Bible, make notes in your Bible, think on the Bible, do that all the time. You will be in the right place, okay? The reason for speaking this way to the Ephesians, as opposed to how he speaks to the Corinthians, he says, imitate God rather than imitate me, is that the Corinthians were carnal and not yet grounded in how to imitate God. If he were to have told them to imitate God as he did to those at Ephesus, they would have nothing substantial on which to accomplish this admonition. One must first learn what God expects before imitating him. How do we know that's true? Because we got people in countries all over the world and even in America at times that walk into stores with all kinds of stuff strapped on their body and they pull a, a cord or they flick a switch and they blow themselves up thinking they're imitating God or they're glorifying God through what they're doing. And they're not doing that at all, right? So you have to know what God expects before you can imitate God. As Paul knew what God expected, they could follow him and thus learn how to imitate God. Paul's words are logical, they're clear, and they demonstrate the wisdom which God granted him in order to handle every situation in the most effective way. Life application. How important it is for instructors, teachers, and pastors to understand what God expects before teaching others. Without being God-like in their behavior, those who are instructed by them will most likely never truly learn how to imitate God. Got to know your Bible. You got to know what God expects. And you have to form your mind to that. You have to form your life to that and then be the example for other people. And I just said teachers and pastors and whatever. Every one of us should be in that position. Every single one of us should be able to say, let me show you how to imitate God. Let me show you how to pursue the things of God. All right, verse 417. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and my, it says, my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. For this reason, here will explain Paul's previous statement, which said, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. So for this reason is based on that. As is, was noted, <clears throat> Paul wasn't trying to cause a greater division by having those at Corinth imitate him over some other apostle. Rather, he was asking them to imitate him because he was an imitator of Christ, something they lacked and wouldn't get right unless they had proper example. In support of that reason, he told them that he has sent Timothy to you. Timothy was Paul's protege, and he would fill the need of the Corinthians on Paul's behalf. This Timothy, Paul states, is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, a term he uses elsewhere. Like those in Corinth, whom Paul called his beloved children in verse 14, Timothy was also. Because Paul looked at all of them as sons, he felt that Timothy would be a great help in understanding what he was conveying. However, later in his letter, it still seems unsure if Timothy would actually make it to Corinth or not, because he uses the word if concerning his travels. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says here, 116, 10. And if, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, 
that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So he's not really sure if he's coming, but he's planning on sending him. Should he make it as planned, Paul said that he will remind you of my ways in Christ. In other words, we can look at his petition to imitate me from verse 16 as a sound request because of his ways in Christ. Paul wasn't trying to misdirect the Corinthians. He was trying to properly direct them. With Timothy confirming this, they could be certain that they were imitating that which was proper and their faith would not be misdirected. In fact, their doctrine and practice would be in a manner harmonious with all of the churches which had been established because Paul claimed that his teaching was the same, as he says, as I teach everywhere in every church. He was consistent in his proclamation of Christ, consistent in his doctrine, and determined to follow up to ensure that those things continued properly. How nice it would be today if all seminaries taught a proper message of Christ and then occasionally stopped by to check up on the doctrine of their graduates. That is something you never see ever from a seminary. We, what we failed to do, Paul carefully and meticulously accomplished. There is a guy, I can't remember his name. He was in England. He was a pastor. He kind of did that on a personal level. He went from his church to every single person in his church once a year, and he sat down with them and went through the core parts of doctrine once a year in their home with them. Probably got a meal out of it, so hey, bonus, but whatever. That was something he made a point of doing. If seminaries taught properly, which there are a lot of really bad seminaries out there, but if they taught properly, and if they would then send somebody to where their pastors were, if they know that person is in a pastoral position and they went and they checked them out, that would be a really marvelous thing. It does not happen. I've never heard of it, not one time happening. Life application. <clears throat> Discipleship is an immensely important aspect of the faith. Leading people to Christ is only the beginning of a lifelong journey of discovery. If you have the necessary training to teach others what is right and sound about Christ, make an effort to impart to those who are less informed. Paul deemed this immensely important, and so should we. All right, I don't think we're going to get done with this chapter today, but we got a couple more verses. Verse uh, 418. Chapter 5 is just such a marvelous passage. I'm not trying to go quickly through chapter 4. I just happen to notice that we're close to the end. And so uh, chapter 5 is just one of those instructional chapters that it, it take you 30 seconds to read it. And you could read it 100 times and learn something new out of it each time. Anyway, 18. <clears throat> now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. In the previous verse, Paul noted that he was sending Timothy to those in Corinth for a reminder of his consistent message which he teaches everywhere he goes. Having said this, he already knows that some are puffed up. The idea, as noted previously, is that of puffed up means proud. proud. Thank you. When yeast is put into dough, it causes the bread to rise, thus picturing being prideful, full of boasting or arrogant. And some translations do use the term arrogant. But by doing this, the imagery is lost. It will be more especially the case as Paul will use the example of dough puffing up in chapter 5. He then notes the reason for some being puffed up by saying, It is as though I were not coming to you. Those who were involved in these divisions who, and who took the side of Apollos would certainly say, See, he's afraid to come himself and so he's sending Timothy instead of coming personally. It would then be a poke in the eye of, to those who claim Paul was their man. And thus the divisions would continue. This is why he has preempted them in his letter with this statement. 
He in fact plans, he in fact has plans already to come to Corinth, but there were also other things on his plate that he could do before or that he had to do before. This will be explained to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let me read that to you now so you know that uh, he's not just making this up to them. He says, um, uh, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that while I remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to, uh, to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So he's saying, I don't want to just make a passing visit. I've got other things that have to be done. I would like to stay with you. And he even says, maybe spend the winter with you. Well, that would drive the, the uh, opposite division, the Apollos people, crazy until they got to know him better and realized that he wasn't an old ogre. Life application. An effective way of dispelling problems is to think in advance what other issues may arise and then preempt them with words of surety about the resolution to those issues. In doing this, it may completely alleviate the necessary to fix a problem that otherwise could have been avoided. And that's what he's doing right there. He's saying, listen, I'm sending Timothy to you, but don't make the mistake that I'm not coming to you by thinking I'm sending Timothy because I don't want to come to you, okay? And he's preempting them in that by saying what he just said in this verse. If we can think things through properly and critically, we will be able to avoid a lot of pitfalls in life. Verse 419. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not, and I will know not the word of those who are, let me read that again. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Okay. But is used to contrast his previous words saying, as though I were not coming to you. He had no fear of discharging his duties as an apostle, and he had no timidity in facing those who looked down on him. He intended to come, and he eventually did make it back to Corinth. This occurred shortly after writing his second letter to them. However, at the time of writing, the future was unknown to him, and so he uses a common term of the apostles, if the Lord wills. Who else says that we should say that? Begins with a J, ends with Ames. Yes, you got it, James. Outside of the promises of the Lord, there can be no certainty in the future, not even the near future. James explains our utter dependence on God and his hand of providence quite well. Here's what he says, James chapter 4, which comes right after the book of Hebrews. Okay, James chapter 4, and he says there, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Okay, so he's saying basically the same kind of thing. And I know that's not the if the Lord wills, but he's speaking on the same lines as Paul about the issue. The same attitude of looking to God's will, even for the immediate future, is used elsewhere by the apostles, and it shows that they were willing to allow the Spirit to lead them. You know, I'm going to go, I, I see what I did. 
I did read the wrong uh, verses there. Yeah, I'm in, I do this a lot. I have two chapters on one page, and I read from chapter thirteen. Not I'm sorry, chapter three, not four. Let me read you the correct chapter now. The reason, see, it's got four and five, and so I assume when I look at five that this is four, and I'm actually looking back beyond four to three. Okay, so here we go. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, I knew I got that wrong. She's over there shaking her head at me because I'm constantly reading. I do this all the time. When I post a verse on a, a sunrise photo in the morning, I'm always looking at the chapter before or after. And so I write the wrong chapter and I got to go back and check every day to make sure I posted the right one. It's called, does anybody know what it's called when you put things backwards? That's what Chris, who goes out on mission work with, and me, we've got it. We've got very similar traits in our life. I'm always reading things backwards, always. Anyway, here we go. Um, that, so that's James 4, 13 and 16. This same attitude of looking to God's will, even for the immediate future, is used elsewhere by the apostles. And it shows that we they were willing to allow the Spirit to lead them. And they had resigned their ultimate end to the capable hands of the Lord. And so, if the Lord wills that Paul return to Corinth, then at that time he indicates, I, I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. The final portion of the verse tells us that Paul would be willing to listen to the words of of the various factions in Corinth, especially the leaders of the divisions, and he would be able to tell which were merely puffed up orators without firm grounding in the word as it was given, and those who had considered the power of the gospel, the truth of scripture, and the work of Jesus Christ, and had presented it carefully. Those who did so, those who were filled with the power of the word, the power of the spirit, and the power of proper influence over the flock. Life application, running ahead, without properly handling God's word, has led to a breakdown in correct theology throughout the Christian world. Unfortunately, it is the flock who suffers the most. People have jobs, families, responsibilities which consume their time. Therefore, their instruction comes not from self-studies mostly, but from those who are supposed to be trained already. Extreme care and tender love and respect for the word of God is of paramount importance for the one who would be a teacher of it. That takes you right back to James 3, which I cited last week. Brethren, not many of you should purpose to be teachers, knowing that you will receive the stricter judgment. Verse 420. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. For refers directly back to what was just stated about Paul's coming to Corinth and his discernment of the power rather than in puffed up words. Those who were puffed up were divisive and they were filled with words of substance. On the contrary, Paul was filled with the power of the Spirit and the ability to effect real change in the lives around him. Of course, he did this with the miraculous healings and the like, but more than that, he did it by the power of the words he spoke. The words of the gospel, both then and now, effect real change in those who hear them. Drunkards turn into solid citizens, prostitutes become princesses, and the proud turn and humble themselves before God. There is great power in the words of the gospel, Words to which the puffed up boastings of the world can never attain because the 
gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. This then is the kingdom of God. It is not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual one. It is a group of called out believers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Someday this kingdom will be physical on as Christ sits on his throne and rules among his people. But at this time, it is a kingdom of faith in him and in the surety of God's word. Life application, there is power in the gospel message, but the power is of no use if it isn't shared. The world is quickly getting darker as the church age comes to its close. Before that terrible day, which will fall upon all the unrepentant, it not it right that we open our mouths and share? Go forth in the power of the gospel. And yes, we have five minutes and I'm going to get this last verse of the chapter done. Verse 21, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? After as many comments of chapter 4, which are tied in completely with the preceding chapters concerning divisions within the church, Paul asks in a forthright manner, what do you want? In essence, the choice is up to you when I come and the results will be realized upon my arrival. And the choices are given. One, shall I come to you with a rod? Is discipline necessary when I arrive? The idea of using a rod is one for, for one who needs correction and redirection. If it needs to be used in a harsh way, so be it. A rod can be employed for something as simple as redirecting the head of a lamb to move where the shepherd desires, all the way to smashing one's enemies with brutal force. Is the rod what you wish? Or shall I come to you in love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul writes about love later in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in a way that shows what he means. The demonstration of love is one which does not behave rudely. It does not seek his own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Along with this would naturally come a spirit of gentleness. There would be no rod, need for a rod of correction, but gentle words of direction, guidance, and a harmonious spirit. Would you prefer love and gentleness? Paul will continue to write them in this manner in his second letter to them. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 2, he will tell them, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And again, in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 10, he will direct his words to show that he is serious about what he said. Here's what he says there. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Paul's direction was always for edification and not for destruction. But he also knew that a strong rod of correction may be needed. It must have broken his heart to have to speak in the manner he did. But in the end, strong words are occasionally needed for keeping the body united and working toward the common goal of spreading the good news in truth and in accord with the word. Life application? Why should we butt our heads against the word of God? If Paul was set to correct those who were disobedient with a rod, how much more do we deserve correction? We who have the whole counsel of God in written format, let us spend our time wisely, learning, loving, cherishing, and adhering to God's precious word. How precious is your word to me, O oh God, more precious than oil upon my head. 
It is a light to my feet and a lamp for where I trod, rather to have your word than all the world's gold instead. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Help me from this day forward to start pursuing your word even till my days are through. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the words of Paul because they cut right to our own heart as well. We've got the same problems in churches today that they had 2,000 years ago. And without studying what he has said and without going to him for guidance, which came from you through him, we're just as lost as anybody else. And thank you for Jesus, who is the one that has saved us from our sins in the past and help us to be strong, faithful, and competent Christians in our theology going forward in the future. Help us to have a hunger to read your word, a desire to read it, not to just sit and watch TV, not to just go out and play baseball and, and do things that are fun in this life, but to spend our time wisely while we can, learning your word and cherishing it, thinking on it, meditating on it, and sharing it. Help us to do this, Lord, that you will be glorified and that we will be built up in you. Help us in this, Lord. And we want to once again remember the people that we mentioned earlier and anybody else that we've forgotten. Somebody came into mind just now that's looking for a job up in Connecticut, and I would pray that you would help her to find that job and to bring her to a, a point where she's not worried or anxious in any way about her financial security. Lord, I would pray for these people, and I would pray that you would uh, uh, just be with us in the week ahead until we come together again, wherever we are meeting, whether it's at the Superior Word or another church. And uh, thank you for that. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, oh boy. Let me back this thing up here for you. Let's see here. We're going to go to break.